Well, we are jumping into Hebrews today, so you may need to flex your fingers a little bit. You'll definitely need to pull your Bibles out um, because the book of Hebrews, even more than most other uh, books, will get you um, running to and fro throughout Scripture and uh, all over the place. So um, now I'll, I will also tell you here at the beginning, um, as we jump into a book like the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrew people, um, I, I hope you're someone who likes to study Scripture with a little more um, depth, with some layers to it. And so I apologize if, 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 and I mean this seriously, if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of experience studying Scripture, um, then, then this could get a little... Um, Tedious is not the word I'm looking for, but it feels that it could feel that way. If you're, as we're digging into this and running all over Scripture, so I want you to stay focused on some of the main themes that we're going to deal with as we as we engage with this letter, because it is challenging and it's it's a fun one. But it's actually this is this is the book that declares about itself that it is for established believers. It declares about itself that it is meat, not milk. And so, if you're at the milk phase, your jaws may get a little sore um, as we go through this conversation. Your gums may feel a little raw by the end of it. So, um, uh, just, just toughen through it, and uh, hopefully those adult teeth will start coming in uh, as we move forward. Now, all that being said, I also have to admit that when I start reading the book of Hebrews, the way it begins... Um, makes me want to present it in a very specific way. So, so the way the book of Hebrews begins is like this. They decided to go with 1.5 speed because it was really slow in the first service. And I think 1.5 speed was a little too fast. <laughs> um, anyway, so for those of you who have the same addictions and illnesses that I do, you are now engaged and you're ready to go. I would love to say that the first time I saw Star Wars, I thought, that's just like the beginning of Hebrews, but I would be lying. Um, however, every time I start the book of Hebrews, I think, that's just like the beginning of Star Wars. It's actually not. That's how bad I am. There's just the phrase, a long ago, like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Here we have instead just the phrase, long ago and in many times in many ways, and it still feels to me like it should be scrolling up the screen. So, um, God may be emphasizing some of my points today. By the way, if you've looked at your weather app, um, I'm hoping that the timing is, is really good with the thunder hitting at just the right moment. So, we'll see. We'll see if, that's a, we'll see if that works out. So, um, this is this idea, the writer of Hebrews, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the writer of Hebrews here in a second, because I'm going to give you today, I'm going to lay the groundwork for this letter and then hopefully get through chapter one. Um, but this, this various times and in various ways. So throughout Jewish history and even beyond, God has revealed himself, revealed truths about himself in various ways and at various times through angels, through prophets, um, through visions, through the law, through all these different, through lawgivers like Moses, and in various different ways. And the writer of Hebrews is going right out of the gate talking about how important this is. And so we're going to get just right out of the gate. It's going to, it's going to, there's no preamble for the book of Hebrews. In fact, there literally isn't, which is why we don't know for sure who wrote it. You'll notice there's none of that 
you know, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect scattered throughout the world type of thing. You don't get that in Hebrews. Hebrews just starts and it's going. You can study the book of Hebrews the rest of your life and not finish. Um, I, one of the authors who I was uh, listening to, to this week preached through the concept of the beginning of Hebrews um, actually said if they were trapped on a desert island and they could only choose one book, they would take the book of Hebrews. Um, because there's so much mystery there and so much in-depth study to be done that you can spend the rest of your life doing it. So that's, that's significant. It's that kind of a book. In fact, already even digging at new levels into it in preparation for this Sunday. Um, so for example, um, I found so that the, the, the Torah, the, the law, the books of the law, were read in synagogue every week according to a certain pattern. Um, that's, that's significant at different times in Scripture and, and in other times. In, um, that they would very, It's a very organized pattern. And there was debate, of course, because these are, after all, God worshipers, which means they're going to debate over something. But they're debating over, should that be done every year or every three years? And so some went by a three-year, a triannual plan. Some went every year. They went through the whole book um, of the first five books and then other aspects of, the, of what we call the Old Testament. Um, one of the authors who I read this week makes the claim that everything in the book of Hebrews is laid out across the pattern of someone who was studying the three-year plan. Can you imagine trying to make all that work together? That someone picked up on that formula and that somehow that's... I don't even know if that's accurate or not, but it's another example of... I've, I've never heard that before. It's another example of one of those things that you could... Um, dive into. Again, I don't know, John or Paul or some of you guys, if you guys have ever heard that before, I was like, wow, I don't even want to touch that with a pole. Like the amount of hours it would take to verify that and dig into that, you could do that with Hebrews. Now we're going to be trying to cover a chapter every 35 minutes or so in, in the sermon series. So you're going to have lots of opportunity to study on your own, um, to study outside of here. It would be a great life group for someone to dig into in the fall, um, to really spend two hours or more digging into this book every week. You could do it without a problem. Um, now, we don't know exactly when this book was written, when this letter was written, and it is a letter. Some say it's even a sermon text um, or a series of sermon texts that were written down and sent out. Um, but regardless, it is an argument that the writer of the book of Hebrews is making a linear argument, and I'm gonna, by the time we're done, I'll have explained what I mean by that, but this is, a, this is a linear theological conversation. It was probably written in the mid-A.D. 60s, so um, Americans don't know history very well, so somewhere around A.D. 0 is when Jesus was born, um, and then somewhere around A.D. 30, plus or minus a few years, is when Jesus is crucified and resurrected. So somewhere around A.D. 60, mid-60s, so 63, 64, 65, maybe even a little further than that, so about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is probably when this book was written. Now I'm going to comment real quickly because a lot of the books that we have in our New Testament were written during that time period, in the 60 to 70 time period. And as in my discussion, as some of you know, I was in a discussion with uh, an atheist gentleman this week, um, and it was on a podcast, and it'll hopefully come out in a few weeks, but man, once we got started, it was, it was nuts. I mean, we started talking at nine o'clock at night, and we finally got off at 12.20 in the morning, um, three and a half straight hours, no break of us, of him grilling me with 
reasons why I shouldn't believe in God and me defending the, the case for Christ and the case for God and the case for Scripture. And um, as much fun as it was, let me just tell you, I was, I was like loopy after it. I mean, I was... Uh, um, y'all remember that if some of you remember like you'd do something like play a, a sporting event all day or you'd go to prom or something like that and then you try to go to bed but your brain was still at prom or still doing that sporting event for like next three hours I was debating this poor guy I mean poor me was debating this guy after I hung up the phone for about another three hours and my trying to sleep and um, so the next day I was like did it really happen or did I dream the whole thing so it would have he could have convinced me um, it was a wild experience but one of his complaints was um you know, it's a 30-year gap. There's this 30-year gap between when these things happened and when they... And, and so I was able to say, one, 30 years is not a long time historically. It's not at all a long time, especially when you're talking about an era that it took months or years to travel any distance at all. Like, this is not a long time. And the idea that it would be a long time is, is just an error. Second, the eyewitnesses, many of them were still alive, and so you probably have the Apostle John reading the book of Hebrews, what we call the book of Hebrews. There'd be no reason why they would not have engaged with these books. And it easily could have been that they could have at the beginning said like, yeah, this is junk. This is terrible. And I can't, I'm confident that the early church, if the Apostle John had said, this needs to be tossed, it would have been. In fact, the book of Hebrews nearly was anyway. And we'll get there. Um, but probably you're talking about the mid-60s. Here's why. Almost certainly before A.D. 70. What happened in A.D. 70? Anybody? The temple in Jerusalem was leveled and destroyed. So if you're going to teach in a book that Jesus is a better temple than the temple in Jerusalem, you're probably going to reference that the temple has been burned to the ground, right? The writer of Hebrews does not reference that. So almost certainly before A.D. 70. However, Roman persecution of the Christians didn't really ramp up until the early A.D. 60s. And clearly there is severe persecution going on in the description of Hebrews. So again, that's how we end up leveling it somewhere in the A.D. 60s. That may or may not be interesting to you, but I think it's important that we recognize this is, this is the first generation of Christians were still around when this book was written and this letter was written. Um, one way, in fact, one way of understanding. So some of you are really looking forward, if you've studied Hebrews, you're really looking forward to the discussion of Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, which are two very challenging passages, especially about what happens when Christians, quote, fall away. Well, one way to understand is that the early church was already, by the A.D. 60s, dealing with this severe problem, and that was sometimes members of the church would deny Christ in order to keep from being tortured to death. So what do you do when you're a church and you're in hiding and you're hiding in a bunch of tombs or caves and you're trying to keep the Romans from finding you so you can worship and then a bunch of Romans show up and they arrest a bunch of you and someone in the group says, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm never, I was not part of their church. And in fact, here's where a couple of other churches are hiding. And then a year later, that person comes back and says, oh my gosh, I made a huge mistake. Can I come back to church? Can you see why that would be a tough call? And so the early church is going, do we let him back or do we not let him back? And in fact, one of the earliest splits in the Christian community was, do we let people like that back? In the, it had nothing to do with their salvation. It was, are they allowed back in the church? That's, which you can understand why that would be a tough call. Do we let them back in the church or not? Or are they done? Do you restore that one back to the church or not? So that's a big part of what was going on for them. 
Uh, these were not first generation. Those weren't the first generation. We don't have any records of people who walked and talked with Jesus falling away. We don't have any records of it if it happened, except for, um, of course, Judas, if you count that. But other than that, these are, we're talking about people who heard and, and became Christians at some point and then perhaps denied him. Um, to understand the way this book works is um, we, we used to have these things called overheads. Um, I actually thought about going and trying to find one. Um, I, I got, I've got to think there's a closet at, at the downtown campus with an overhead in it. There, there may even still be teachers in Tyler teaching with overheads. I could find one. Um, there's a guy on TV who I sometimes watch, and he still uses an overhead. And I'm like, that's awesome. So, um, um, but, but the way an overhead works, kids, is, um, is that you have these clear see-through things, pages, and you lay them on top of each other. So you could do part of a picture and then add to that picture and add to that picture and add to that picture and um, each step of the way. And so you'd imagine a PowerPoint being the way that the book of Hebrews works, that you have the Torah, you have the books of the law, and then you have the Psalms in particular and some of the other passages of scripture and the historical documents and then you have the gospels laid on top of that and then you have the early church teachings laid on top of that and so it's deep and you're looking through something like this and as you're going to see that in just a minute and on top of that it's Jewish it is written to a Jewish audience um, in some ways it's written in beautiful Greek but as I understand it I'm not a Greek scholar but but it's written into the Jewish kind of a Jewish mindset and so here's one of the big ones that's going to get us is that there's going to be just a phrase used. The writer is going to use just a phrase from a psalm or from Deuteronomy or from Samuel. And we hear that phrase and we go, huh, well, that's cool. But that's because we're not a good Jewish audience. We're not connecting to the entire passage that that phrase is from. But a good Jewish audience would have. They would have connected to the whole thing. So I mentioned, for example, in the first service, that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Boy, I have heard teaching that goes all over the map based on that, that, that really claims things that would be impossible um, uh, for the divine God. Instead of realizing Jesus is a good Jewish rabbi, the Son of God, hanging on a cross. So he begins to quote the 22nd Psalm. It's one of the Psalms that any good Jewish person would quote while suffering. Um, and of course, so the scribes and the Pharisees who are watching him be crucified, and he goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they keep going. So they're in their head, they're going, uh-huh, well, my God, my God, why have you to them? Oh, you know what? There's something in there about hanging from a tree. And you know what? There's a passage about the bones not being broken in there. You know what? This, that's interesting. Jesus is, and turns out Jesus is actually, by referencing the 22nd Psalm, is referencing the crucifixion itself and its prediction from, from the psalmist, David. I think David. That one's about David. And so that's, a, that's part of what you're experiencing there. And a Jewish audience would have known that's what he was doing is he's referencing an entire psalm that is about the crucifixion that any Jew would have quoted during suffering. It's, it's really pretty beautiful when you understand it. And they probably would have read the whole thing. The same thing's going to be true here. The, song, the, the writer of Hebrews is going to reference a passage. And we who don't know the, the, most of the Old Testament by heart, certainly the Psalms by heart, we just hear it and go, oh, that's, that's interesting how that connects. Um, but then you see that the whole passage is significant. So we're going to, we're going to go through some of that before we're done um, here today. All right, so let's jump in. Oh, I, one other little thing I wanted to comment on. Anytime you do theological study, 
which is what studying the book of Hebrews is, like the book of Romans, to a certain degree like the book of John. These are theology studies. This is, this is the studying the, the doctrine of who God is, and, and in this case, who Jesus Christ is. That's significant. And so, to move through this is going to be a theological study, which is exciting for some of you, and not so much for others of you, I get. That being said, here's the danger. When you study theology, you don't ever want God to become merely the subject of study rather than the object of devotion. If we're not careful as we study theology, we can get an elitist mindset versus recognizing, no, this should motivate us to worship. This should drive us to be impressed by who God is. So, let's start reading. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is, for a Jewish audience, even ones who are converted to Christianity, this is still a powerful and important passage. You can't just say this. What makes a Jew a Jew? What made the early Hebrews who they were? It was a belief they had, and it was the statement they make every morning and every evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's, that's significant. That's, that, that defines them. They don't have some pantheon of gods. And the writer of Hebrews here, writing to this audience, then says that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. This is a philosophical statement. So catch this. Um, to understand what a nature is. So a nature is the compilation of all of, an, of, all of something's essential traits. So, a little philosophy 101. Let me, let me show you what, that, what I mean by that. So, a circle, there's a circle. Now, if I make the circle smaller, now what is it? Still a circle. What if, I, what if I draw it over here? Now what is it? Circle. If I made it purple, it would be? A circle. Because color, location, and size are not essential traits of a circle. They're not part of its nature. You follow? Now, I'm going to draw a circle with four corners. Okay, what would you say? Not a circle, right? Now it's a square. Because round is an essential trait of a circle. If you change that, you change what it is. You following me? This is important. So circle doesn't have many essential traits. Um, it's easy to talk about. It only has a couple. But that's the difference between essence and the nature of a circle, the author of Hebrews begins right here by saying that Jesus Christ is the exact duplicate, the exact imprint, the exact representation of the nature, all of the essential traits of God. He is declaring Jesus, he or she is, de I'll get to that in a second, is declaring Jesus Christ God. Jesus Christ carries the essence of what it means to be God. That's the declaration here. So that whole, here is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The writer of Hebrews has just said, well, I mean two. 
And you can't just say that to a Hebrew audience. That's blasphemy. That is, that's a good way to get killed. In fact, they, that's the kind of thing they crucified Jesus for saying. You can't just say that. So the rest of the book is really going to be making the proclamation that Jesus Christ is all of these things. He is greater than. He is a better messenger than angels, a better king than David, a better lawgiver than Moses, a better temple than anyone in Jerusalem, etc., etc., etc. It's the one series, one thing right after another. All right. Whew. Okay, so back to that. Um, this is a Jewish author, apparently, because the Jewish author says, Our fathers, referencing the history of Israel. So, probably a Jewish author, but who? So, for a while, it was accepted that it was Paul. Um, and it may very well have been Paul. That's still a common, though not as common, case that's made, is that the Apostle Paul is who wrote Hebrews. Um, uh, the problem is because there's a couple of passages that seem to indicate that the writer of Hebrews is a second-generation Christian, not an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, but a second-generation Christian. And they reference at some point having not heard, that they didn't hear it directly. Um, and Paul really considered himself a first-generation Christian. Again, this doesn't end an argument, but um, okay, that's, that's one. Some people think maybe one of the people who followed Paul, like Barnabas or, or someone like that, wrote this. And that, that's fine. That's a good case. Obviously, this person knew Timothy. They referenced Timothy um, with intimacy by the end of the book. So, someone who was in that circle of people, the only person who, it's, who we know for sure it wasn't, essentially ends up being Timothy because he's mentioned. Um, I said he or she a minute ago. There's some argument that it was a woman. Priscilla, for example, is, is often cited. Um, maybe there's some reason for that. Maybe that's why the author didn't put their name on the book is because it was a woman and she didn't want it dismissed. The problem is there is a passage in which the writer of Hebrews using a pronoun uses the masculine version of the pronoun. And so that would seem to put Priscilla out of the running. But people have accepted, well, maybe it's a woman and she did that on purpose in order to hide her identity. I agree that that's a reach, but you're still stuck with not knowing for sure. And it is the only book that really you can say the author, he or she. So, kind of fun to do that. Um, all right, so Apollo, whoever, the truth is only God knows who wrote this letter. But the early Christian church cited it. They referenced it. They talked about it. And that's why it made it in the Bible. It almost didn't. Um, when the early Christian fathers were trying to decide which books were going to go in, which books were accepted, the book of Hebrews was one that squeaked in because we didn't know the author. But so many people referenced it, you're stuck with. And it declares the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the kingship of Jesus Christ, the divine sonship of Jesus Christ, the superiority of Jesus Christ, superiority of Jesus Christ. That's why we say Jesus is greater than is the theme for the book of Hebrews. Not very unique. Everyone teaches that theme because it's so obviously there. All right, so the passage is important to the whole, so we're going to reference this. So like, like having that one verse make me think of Star Wars. The truth is a very, if, if you're culturally um, acclimated to something, if it's, if it's integrated in you, if a certain cultural concept, and the, the books of the Bible, especially the favored ones, the Psalms, the Torah, were, they were integrated into these people's minds. Like jingles for commercials are for us. Like these were there. And the very smallest hint of it could cause uh, all the rest of it. The emotional response, the intellectual response, all of it. The tiniest bit, even without context, sometimes can create a whole connection. So I think we have an example of that.
All right, you can stop. Panic attacks were setting in in the audience. So for the young people in the audience, that, that like means nothing. You're like, wait, that was strange. Why did my dad's hands suddenly grow all cold and clammy, right? Has, um, the, the number two phobia of people of my generation is sharks because we were all like six when we saw that, the movie Jaws, which is totally inappropriate. Ginger used to run and jump into her bed because she was afraid there was a shark under her bed, Right? <laughs> you could live in Kansas, and if you're a Gen Xer, you're afraid of sharks um, because we were all disturbed by that movie. And so it creates all kinds, of, um, all kinds of intellectual and emotional responses, just the tiniest thing. The tiniest hint in the book of Hebrews to a Jewish audience written by a Jewish author, all it takes is the tiniest hint. When the Jewish author, by the way, of Hebrews says, and somewhere it says, I am 100% convinced that is tongue-in-cheek. That's not like, I think seem to remember somewhere reading, and then, then he, quotes a, he or she quotes a psalm, or quotes Deuteronomy, or quotes from Samuel. No. They're not going, ah, I'm pretty sure it's in there somewhere. It is, they're saying, it's in there, and you know it's in there. And, and his audience is going to absolutely know exactly what's being referenced there. So I think that's important. I'm, I'm not willing to buy the idea that, they're, that the writer is going like, I think I remember it saying, uh, God helps those who help themselves somewhere in the... It doesn't say that in the Bible, by the way. Um, so here we go. We're going to jump into these and get as far as we can um, in the next few minutes. But um, So in chapter 1, verse 5, for example, you are my son and today I have begotten you. And the writer of Hebrews references this. To which of the angels, this is going to be a whole series of rhetorical questions. To which of the angels did God ever say this? So the first hurdle is, is Jesus a better messenger than angels? And the writer is now going to say, is going to make that point. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you? This is from Psalm chapter 2. This is a passage about the reign of God's anointed one. David is who's probably being referenced here, certainly, but more than David. So listen to this. So I'm going to read a whole little section here. Psalm 2, 6 through 12. We could read the whole chapter, but I would have to do that with all of them. That's, it easily would work, but take a long time. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge for him from in him. So again, this, this whole passage, if you're, if you're a, a Hebrew and you're reading just that one verse um, that just says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, you probably, would your brain would have gone, Oh, that's from, that, that's from that psalm, that second psalm that we have. And, and you would have worked that through in your brain and you'd start making this connection. Like that passage is about God anointing somebody, declaring them something. Messiah means anointed one. Christ, anointed one, chosen one. Those are the pictures being created here. Or also in verse 5, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Again, just one little phrase. And yet, this is a passage again about David from 2 Samuel. Uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, 
that you should be a prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, listen to the Listen to the, 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 clearly this is about Solomon, and yet it's more than just Solomon. David and Solomon, but more. I will declare, um, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It, it goes on to finish, it goes down and says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. In other words, I'm going to bring another anointed one. I'm going to, this, when we talked about prophecy, how there's a recapitulation of these things. They happen, and then they happen again, and then they happen again. In this situation, the, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out, it has happened again, this time with God's own son being anointed. By the way, a lot of these first ones, the, the author is clearly pointing out that Jesus is king. That's not hard. Um, he doesn't have a hard time with that because of the lineage. Jesus is in the lineage of King David. He is in the tribe of Judah. That's not hard to accept. But for a Jewish audience, he's also going to claim that Jesus Christ is the high priest. Why is that? And by the way, that's going to require way more chapters. Why is that more difficult for the Jewish audience to declare that Jesus Christ is priest? Anybody? Because he's not a Levite. He's not in the right, he's not from the right family. That's not how this works. And so the author of Hebrews is really going to have to work, and they do, to show that Jesus Christ is a better priest than the priests. We'll get there. It'll take a few weeks. How about this? Um, let all God angel, God's angels worship him. Now, I will also comment, the version of the Bible that the writer of Hebrews is working from, how's this for crazy? is the Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Many at the time of Jesus would not have had access to a Hebrew version of the Old Testament. That's crazy for us. I've said this before, and I think this is a, a, a claim that can be made. It's tough, but it can be made, is that literally we today have as good or better copies of Old Testament material than the first century Christians did. We are that blessed with our copies of Scripture. Um, theirs were typically the Greek, what we would call the Greek Old Testament. And so in this one, the version is translated angels. You'll see, and now we translate it slightly differently. This is, let all God's angels worship him. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 32. I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Now, I'm not going to keep doing this with all of them. But you could do this with every single verse. That the writer of Hebrews throws out five words and the entire chapter is what makes those five words apply. 
Um, I was even, even joking with Paul earlier in the week about how it seems like the, the writer of Hebrews just kind of is like, yeah, well, whatever, this seems to make... But as I've dug further into it, it's the passages, the whole passages, that seem to make these good applications of Scripture. And again, I was thinking like an American. I was not thinking like a Jew. And this book is by, written by a Jew for Jews. So listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy 32. 39 through 43. And again, the whole chapter would be good, but that's a long chapter. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift my hand to heaven, and I swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me, I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. I don't understand that phrase. But verse 43, rejoice with him, O heavens, and bow down to him all gods. Again, in the Greek Old Testament, that says angels. Um, For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. This is a tough-sounding God. This is a God who has declared war on his enemies and will declare war on evil and will make things right. And this is a God who sets things right. You do not want to be the adversary of God when it comes time for him to set things right. That's that's the, the fundamental faith and kind of fear and trepidation that we have about Almighty God. But notice the reference that to which of the angels has he ever said that the angels should worship one another? He doesn't. In fact, it's one of the interesting things that you get in the New Testament. Every once in a while, someone runs, someone runs into an angel, and apparently they can be pretty scary creatures, because what's a, what's a common response? John does this. that They fall down for them, right? They fall down. And what does the angel always do? <laughs> Don't do that. Like, that's very much so like, no, 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 no. Hey, I didn't tell him to do that. Like, it's, it's very much so like, no, no, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Don't, don't worship me. There's only one to be worshiped. It's a very clear, like, I get, I get that I'm impressive, but do not, don't do that. You could get me in lots of trouble. Anyway, um, so of the angels, he says, he makes, um, wait a second, I'm going to find the one I'm looking for. Make sure I reference it, because I want to I really make sure I get to this passage, because it is key to where I want to get with this. I don't want to run out of time. Okay, good. Um, Again, we could do this with every one of them. We're not going to. The Son, he says, your throne, O God, verse 8, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, here it is, and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before your companions. Now, if you think we sometimes as New Testament students of Scripture... Um, if we dive into the words and, and the original languages and we really wrestle with them, we, we've got nothing on the Hebrew students of what we would call the Old Testament. They spent lifetime studying these things. And this was a problem passage. Um, this passage in, in uh, the Psalms, this was a difficult one. Because from Psalm, I believe, 45, this is a problem because it makes it sound like this is a worship song written to God, and in the midst of it, the psalmist proclaims the phrase, God, your God. Now, again, that may seem small, but it wasn't to them. It sounds like God is referencing God. God, is, God has a God in this passage is how it comes across. That's a problem. 
God anoints God. This is a passage of anointing. So God anointed someone God. That seems strange and is in fact impossible to correctly understand without the new covenant. It's a tough passage, but once again, it's about anointing, Messiah, priests, kings, all of that concept. The entire psalm emphasizes this. Another one, and we'll come back to that. Hebrews 1, uh, 10 through 12 is from Psalm 102. Sure, in Hebrews 1, 10, look at all these passages that are being referenced back to. The whole letter is like this. One reference after another, staking claim, making a, used to defend it. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They were out like a garment, like a robe. You roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your, ear, your years have no end. Verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none. He's never said any of these type of things to the angels. But he has said these type of things to his son. The entire passage to which God seems to have a God. Look at the, um, how about this? Psalm 110, which is referenced here, being referenced here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at, your, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool. This is such an odd reference. And such a problem passage for the Jewish people that Jesus himself brings it up to point out the challenges of it. If you look over in Luke 20, starting verse 41, Jesus said, but, to, but, to, but he said to them, how could they say that Christ is David's son? Christ being the Messiah, the chosen one. How can they say that that's David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, I know that's a lot. But here's the thing. God doesn't say this stuff to his angels. He said it to his son, and in doing so is declaring that his Messiah, his chosen one, is greater than David. He's a greater king than David. He's a better messenger than angels. This is the point that's going to be made over and over again. Again, we have to put ourselves in their mindset. If I was to say, I, I have a better giver of freedom than Abraham Lincoln, a better declarator of the truth than Thomas Jefferson. Declarator, that was a good word usement there, wasn't it? Um, a better declarer, I think is what I meant to say. But a better declarer of the truth than Thomas. I mean, like, we, we would go through and say the better, and these don't even really do it because these aren't religious figures. They're saying, he's going to say, God, Jesus Christ is a better lawgiver than Moses, a better example than Abraham, a better temple than the temple on the temple mount, a better priest than the high priest, a better word than the law, a better messenger than angels. And by the way, the word angel means messenger. This is going to be the concept of the book of Hebrews. I hope that as we wrestle through it, you will be looking at your life and saying, have I embraced Jesus as better than? Now, for you, you may not say, gosh, I've always wondered if Jesus is a better temple than the temple in Jerusalem. Probably not. But you may have said, is Jesus a better leader than my leaders? Is Jesus a better father than my father? Is he a better teacher than my teachers? Is he a better whatever than whatever? Is he a better use of my time than the other things I do? Like this, this should cause us to engage with the question of, do we live as though Jesus is better than as well? That will happen as we go through it. But we're going to be digging into this. And the good news is, 
The, the Bible speaks for itself, and there should be clear application through all of it. The truth is, he, he does not. Are they not ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those or to inherit salvation? Angels are sent by God to be a blessing for us. So they are servants of God's to serve us. The writer of Hebrews starts off, I mean, coming out at full speed in regards to this conversation, but ecstatic. Ecstatic and excited about this. For the first time in a long time, we get to hear from God himself. And, and that may seem like an odd thing. It was, it was the main source of contention in my conversation with the atheist, uh, my atheist friend this week, is that I kept saying things like, well, David, if there is a God, then of course a donkey can speak. Well, David, if there is a God, then there can be an appropriate moral reason for him to allow this kind of suffering or that kind of suffering. And if he's God, only he would know that. No one else could know it. And, and obviously that was a problem for him. He would say, yeah, but I know there are experts. I don't know there is a God. I'd say, yeah, but I do. I know there is a God. It is the rational choice to make. It's reasonable that there is. There is a God. And he is a better messenger than the angels. That's significant. We get to hear from him himself. How amazing is that? Jesus, the Son of God, the very imprint of the nature of God, is better, and we have a chance to engage with that God himself directly. There's a lot of incredible consequences from this. One of them is, found in, he found, um, in Hebrews 4, that we can approach the throne room of grace with boldness. That we get to go to God and talk to God. That's a big deal. We don't need somebody between us and God. We don't need that. We have that. It is the person of Jesus Christ. He is God himself. So with that being said, that's what we're going to do. Father, we enter into your throne room of grace humbly, confidently, and even boldly, knowing that you have invited us here, that we are welcome with you like sons and daughters, like co-heirs with your son, God, that we have been chosen and adopted what, a, what an amazing thing that you invite us, that you welcome us, that you want us to know the truth, to live out what you've called us. Father, that we get to hear this, the very words of Jesus Christ, your son, not just a prophet, as cool as that is, not just an angel, as amazing as that would be, not just a lawgiver, as significant as we would experience that, Lord, we get to hear it from your Son. So, Lord, I pray that the power of this Word, inspired by your Spirit, um, would change us. And I pray that even now, Lord, as we realize that we get to come to you, that we would, we would not fail to do so. We wouldn't take it, take it for granted that we get to engage with a messenger better than angels with your Son himself. That just like if I was to send one of my children who knows me well to speak on my behalf, that would be better than a hired servant. God, I, that we get to hear from your son is such a blessing. Lead us in that, Lord, to listen, therefore, to what you have to say to us. To transform us and change us through the power, renewing power of your spirit. And then the word 
of your son, the one who carries the exact imprint of your very nature. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.